Well, I'm going to switch gears. Anybody still watching the World Cup? Yeah, all right, more than I thought. There are dozens of us uh, that watch soccer in this church. Wow. Amazing. Dozens. Um, soccer is the beautiful game. I know you guys can't see me. And not that you need to see me, but it's really hard to, like, focus when you can't see the person with the microphone. So, sorry, Ella. Sorry, Ben. Sorry, Catherine. Um, not, not that sorry, but a little bit. Um, Okay, soccer is a beautiful game, not just because there are no commercials. How amazing is that? Like, I've been, I've been, I mean, I love soccer, so I watch it anyway, but my friends who I kind of say that, they're like, whoa, there's not been a commercial this whole time. That's amazing, because NFL is like 15 minutes of actual play and like two hours, 45 minutes of commercials. Um, anyway. So it's not just because of that. I think one of the reasons is because every four years, a team comes around each other. Eleven people are representing something bigger than themselves, and they are moving as one, representing a country, representing a place in the world they belong to. It's something much bigger than themselves. It's something much bigger even than a club that pays them millions of dollars a year. This is, this is for their country. This is a bigger something. Um, and, they, you know, they project for the, that next Sunday's final is going to have somewhere around a billion people watching. So I looked this up. I thought the Olympics was like the most watched thing. It's, it's not even close, okay? The Olympics has like 200 million worldwide. A billion people at least are going to watch the final next week. But not you, because it's during church. <laughs> um, so just record it. That's what I'm going to do. Just going to record it and watch it after church. Okay. So in these four weeks of Advent, we, we move as one into a bigger story. We're representing something much bigger than ourselves, something much bigger than the hustle and bustle of gifts and Christmas trees and ornaments, as cool as that is, at least for my four-year-olds. It's so much bigger. We enter into a story about a king who came at Christmas, who became weak like us, who came for us, but now we wait for him to return. We enter into that story about a king who came and who promised to come again. This is what we're waiting for, as Patrick reminded us last week, the renewal of all things when he returns. He will make all things new, make all crooked things straight. But the question before us this morning and next week Uh, before we enter the season of Christmas, is what are we supposed to do while we wait? What do we do while we wait for him? So we're living in our moment um, through one of the the greatest spiritual recessions in American history. Uh, A new study by Pew Research said that they project by 2070, About 50 years, Christians will likely make up less than half of the U.S. population. Currently, it's about 64% of people say they're a Christian. But nearly a third of those raised Christian, raised in a church, will eventually switch to none or nothing in particular. 
And if the rate of switching continues to accelerate, as it has since the late 90s, um, Christians, pe- the percent of people calling themselves followers of Jesus will decrease to 35%. So from 64% now to 35% in less than 50 years. And nuns, the people that say, I don't believe anything in particular, they will comprise the majority of the American population. If something doesn't shift, that's what they project. And I think the spiritual recession, much like an economic one, can make us want to sort of throw in the towel or be reticent to invest in other people. It can be a very scary time to be a Christian, especially for those of you who are in high school right now, those of you who are in your 20s, the Gen Zs in the room. First of all, we like having you in our church. We love having you in this room. That baptism was such an awesome picture of how important you all are to our church family. But I think for you all in particular, maybe more the millennials, the, the Xers, the Gen Xers in the room, the boomers in the room, for you, you are fighting um, in, in some ways a very unique battle culturally because for the first time in America, people view Christianity not as sort of whatever, like they may have in Gen X or even in the millennial generation. But now, more and more people your age are seeing the church, seeing Christianity as harmful. So, so this affects all of us, this recession that we're in, this spiritual recession. And I think something that they see is the same old divisions and hatred mark us far too often. And so they ache for something better. They ache for a bigger story. And I think we all share that ache. And Jesus gives us the things that we need for us to move together as one in this hard, tumultuous cultural moment that we're in. How do we move together? How do we be a part of something bigger than ourselves? This is what Jesus wants to give us as we wait for him to return as we wait for his second advent. Three things from the parable of the talents. We're going to see three things. While we're waiting, Jesus expects us to first, what, is he, what does he expect us to do? That's the first thing. Why we can be apprehensive, why it's scary. And then third, why and how we can joyfully obey what he has expected of us. So his expectations while we're waiting, why we can be apprehensive, and where joyful obedience comes from. Those are the simple movements for this morning. And I wonder, with that said, if you might stand for the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 25. For it, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. 
his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have, been a, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his, his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the scary word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we were reminded in the sacrament of baptism that we belong to you. If we call on your name, we belong to you forever. And so as we hear your word that is frightening in some ways, we pray that we would know the love of Christ. I pray that you would help me uh, to speak clearly what you have to say to each person in this room, wherever they are with you, wherever they are in their story, uh, that a greater story, the story that you are writing, would be impressed upon each soul. Come Holy Spirit, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at is what Jesus expects of us while we wait for him to return. Um, in understanding this first century context, I'm indebted to a very um, excellent New Testament scholar uh, named D.A. Carson. Um, and he said there's kind of two main things that we often miss in the telling um, or the understanding of this uh, parable. And the first thing uh, is that a talent is not what you probably think it is. Um, you know, maybe you had an Uncle Joe that had incredible jazz flute talents. Uh, that's not what you're supposed to think of here. You're not supposed to think of, uh, you know, the amazing ability that I have to tell dad jokes. Um, you're not supposed to think of those. You're supposed to think about money. This parable is about money. It touches more than money, but it's about our money. A talent in Greek was a unit of weight 
uh, that was especially devoted to measuring money. A denarius was one year's wage for a blue-collar worker in the first century, and a talent was equivalent to about 6,000 denarii, so around, roughly around 20 years' wages. So we're talking about millions of dollars here. And that's why the NIV translates it this way. Again, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability. In other words, this is the parable of the bags of gold. This isn't so much about your skills. This is about the bags of gold. One more word needs translating too that Carson was able um, to really uh, help me out here. Uh, this word doulos, um, which is often translated servant, is really better translated slave. Translators uh, often soften it for obvious reasons, um, but the parable does not make sense if we imagine uh, a servant or a, a maid, a house servant or a maid or like a union worker or something like that. It only makes sense if it, this is a parable about three slaves and their master. But let me say this straight away, that this parable does not excuse slavery any more than the parable of the prodigal son excuses the kids in the room uh, from wasting or for wasting your parents' money or something like that. Jesus is using a, a social convention at the time as a metaphor to teach about the kingdom. But I, I want to say this. Another caveat is needed. Slavery in the first century was very different than the slavery in our own country. In this uh, one, chattel slavery was based on ethnicity, whereas in the first century it was based on economics, and I'll explain that. But again, in this country, an estimated 12 million black men, women, and children were taken by force from West Africa from 1619 to at least 1865. And I just want to be crystal clear uh, that chattel slavery is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why? Because every person and every ethnicity is made in the image of God. Full stop. I just want to say that up front, that it's so important for us, as we hear a word like slavery, to disentangle it from American slavery, because it's not the same thing. In the first century, again, slavery centered on economics, not ethnicity. And one of the main causes of slavery in that day um, was bankruptcy. There were no bankruptcy laws back then, and so if your business went belly up, uh, you had no other recourse legally than to potentially have to sell yourself and even at times your, your whole family in order to pay down the debt that was owed. So you see the difference there, right? You see that difference. That means that you could have slaves in that day from all over the world. You could have slaves um, from Jerusalem. You could have slaves from Africa. You could have slaves from Italy because it wasn't based on ethnicity. It was based on economics. And this meant that the slaves in that day and age could easily have more financial acumen than their masters, which we see in the story. The master in this parable makes an assessment of each slave's ability. For instance, could this former banker, uh, now slave, could he handle $100 million? 
If it's bags of gold, if it's 10 bags of gold, roughly $100 million in today's world. And what about this former landlord? Could he handle around $40 million? And so the master distributes his wealth according to his assessment of their ability. And then he went away on a long journey. And while he's away on this journey, the master expects for each slave to make gains on his gold. And the man who had five bags went at once and he put his money to work. But remember, in that day, there was no NASDAQ, there was no Dow Jones, there was no crypto, thankfully. Um, and, the, and so to invest that huge amount of money, roughly $100 million back then, you had to pick up a dairy herd over here. You had to buy land over there. You had to start a business or 20. It would take a long time and they had to hustle very hard for, for many years in order to make this kind of return on this investment. And so the, the first servant does. He puts the money to work for a long time and he gains five more bags of gold. And the one who had two bag, bags, he does the same and gains two bags more, which is exactly what the master expected when he came to settle accounts with them. And that Greek word for settled accounts, that's the same word that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 14 when he says that all of us will stand before the Lord one day and give an account to God. It's the same word. And so Jesus, he expects his disciples, bringing it out of the parabolic world and into ours, Jesus expects his followers to make gains on what he has given to us by his grace. We are stewards of his varied grace, as the Apostle Peter says. Stewards of his varied grace, not owners. And we are called to give, we are called to invest what he has given to us first. And we're going to drill down uh, more in depth on that a little bit later on, but let's first talk about what kept this, this third slave from investing his master's wealth, because I think that's this is exactly, when we look at his story, we can really relate to why we might, too, uh, be reticent or even afraid uh, to invest in Jesus' kingdom. So secondly, my second point, why we can be apprehensive. It's very tempting, at least for me, when I was growing up reading this story, it was so easy to look, my, look kind of down my nose at the third slave. But I want us to try to get into his shoes for, for a few minutes here. Let's look back at verse 24. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. So the third slave thinks to himself, suppose I invest this gold and the market tanks, I'm still accountable for this money. And so it's easy for us, or it should be, to sympathize with this man because it was such a high risk in investing because he would be accountable either way it went. And so it's too risky. Fear keeps him from investing his master's assets. But that's not what causes him to bury his gold in the ground, actually. Let's look at it a little more closely. Because the other slaves invested knowing full well the risks that they were undertaking. 
the disobedient slave is fearful to invest. Why? Because he didn't know his master. He didn't know the heart, the character of his master. He thinks he's a hard man, which can also mean harsh. It's the same word reserved for the taskmasters in Egypt, the harsh slave drivers. He thinks he's harsh. But I want you to notice something else. Why doesn't the master push him to take the risk like the other two slaves? He doesn't. He actually points out a risk-free alternative. Let's look at verse 26 again. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So you see, the master, he's brilliant. He calls the bluff of the third slave. If the slave had really acted out of his perceptions of the master, then he would have at least put the gold in the bank to gain a little interest. This is what the master is saying to him. But he calls his bluff. He says, you didn't even do that. If you were really fearful of me, you would have at least put it in the bank, but you buried it in the ground. And so he exposed the, the servant for what he really was. He was a self-centered slave. He was more interested in his own glory, his, his, his own story, than in the glory of his master. And so the master, having not received any gains on his gold, he took the talent from the wicked slave and he gave it to the wealthiest one. And then he cast the wicked slave out into the darkness where it says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a phrase that's often used in Matthew's gospel to describe hell itself. Friends and welcome guests, this is really important to understand that the Bible does not teach universalism. The Bible doesn't teach that everyone will be saved in the end. And I know this is maybe hard for us to hear as late modern people, but it's actually God's right as the creator and sustainer of the universe to make the rules about heaven and hell, about mercy and justice. It's actually his right, not ours. And this is what we're seeing in this parable that Jesus actually taught about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. The same person who taught about love also talks about hell, about the just punishment of those who go their own way rather than listening to God. I thought this uh, quote was helpful from this one theologian. He says this, J. Richard Milton Not everyone will be saved because salvation requires subordinating our will to that of the Creator, submitting our life to God's rule. And these images, Gehenna, fires of hell, weeping and gnashing of teeth, depict what is undeniably a terrible fate for those who reject God's rightful claim as ruler of creation. When I was a kid uh, in middle school, actually, I was, um, our youth group went to another local church and we saw a church play called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. Anybody seen that before? We're all like, yeah, 
It was really scary. Um, I'm not joking. That's what it was called, Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. And it showed people dying and going to hell. And it scared me so much that I prayed the sinner's prayer like 35 times that night. Um, because I didn't know what else to do. I, you know, fe- this fear, this fear of, uh, of punishment, of hell, it led me to pray and pray. Um, but it did not lead me to joyful obedience. Fear always leads us away from the master. Fear is only present in one slave in this parable. The wicked slave did not know his master, and so fear leads him to bury his gold in the ground. Fear led him to be self-centered rather than orienting his life around his master's wishes. I want to ask you a question. What is your theology, what you know, your perceptions about God, what is it doing to you? And here's a follow-up. What is your theology doing through you? It was this man's view of his master that led him to be fearful and selfish. And I think if we're honest, we act more out of the perceptions of Jesus, which leads us to fear and selfishness too. We seek to build our own kingdoms rather than his too much of the time. And I think the Pew research that we saw at the beginning reflects as much. That people don't see the church as wildly generous, wildly loving. We, probably they see us as self-centered, self-focused, divided, hypocritical, self-absorbed, just like anyone else. But friends, this is not Jesus' desire for his people. Jesus desires for us to be joyfully obedient to our master. But how? That's my final point. How do we joyfully obey him? Let's look at verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the first two slaves, they, they um, live into the expectation of the master and they make gains on their gold. And he says the exact same thing to them. And I want to just bring out two things that we can glean from this. First, when Jesus returns, when he makes a new heaven and a new earth, it will not be, surprise, surprise, it will not be clouds and harps. What we see, there are many pictures of, pictures of heaven in the Bible, but from this one, we see that we will work. We will be responsible. But here's the best news. We will be free from anything that inhibits joy. In the new heavens and new earth, we will work. We will have tasks and responsibilities, but we won't be burdened by jealousy, by hypocrisy, by selfishness, by death. The second thing we glean 
in this future with Jesus is that this master is different. This master is different than any other master. Notice what he says. I love the NIV's translation. Come and share your master's happiness. The job of a slave is usually to serve the happiness of the master, not to share in it. Every other master says, serve me first, then get the scraps. Do what I say and then fend for yourself. But not this master. This master is different. You can share in my happiness, in my joy. They knew their master's heart. They knew his character. And so what did they do while they were waiting for him? They invested his assets. Do we know his heart? Do we know our master's character? And how do we know? Are we serving our own selves? Predominantly, are we serving him? Are we seeking the approval of man? Are we seeking his approval? Are we trying to please others? Are we trying to please him, our creator, our savior, our redeemer? In other words, do you live in line do I live in line with my professed, with our professed vision of Jesus? And friends, and welcome guests, even if you don't profess faith in Jesus, you are in fact living in line with your professed vision of Jesus. Because most of the world, most of the world thinks Jesus is a good teacher. And so you're living in line with that. But for those of us who believe he's more, that he's a son of God, come to save sinners. Are we living in line with that professed vision of Jesus? Uh, before C.S. Lewis became a Christian, he had no respect for Christians. He had no respect for Christianity. He, in fact, regarded it as inherently irrational, repressive, and harsh. And that view of Christianity led him to be selfish and proud. And that was until he read G.K. Chesterton. He said G.K. Chesterton was the first Christian that I didn't think was an idiot. <laughs> I love that. That's in Surprised by Joy, that part I underlined. I thought that was fun. The first Christian he read that he didn't think was an idiot was G.K. Chesterton. And in 1910, he wrote a poem that many people think is his best work as a poet. And this is just a chunk of it I want to read to you. And well may God with the serving folk cast in his dreadful lot. Is not he too a servant and is not he forgot? And was not my... Was not God my gardener and silent like a slave that opened oaks on the uplands or thicket and graveyard gave? Chesterton, in his brilliant way, his poetic way, was fleshing out what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 2. That though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality as a thing to be grasped, but instead took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. 
Why did the master of the universe, the king of the kingdom, why did he empty himself and become a slave and die? It was the only way to set people who are entrenched in this addiction to money and self and pleasure and power and approval and whatever it is for you. This was the only way to set slaves free was for God to become a slave himself. The master become a slave. But what did that accomplish? Yes, it set us free. But look at John 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. The gospel, the gospel is that we become a friend of God, former slaves of money, of approval, of pleasure, become, yes, slaves of Christ, as the Apostle Paul says, but friends of God. Let me ask you, can riches do that for you? Can a hundred thousand, a hundred million do that? I wish Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, I've never seen that kind of money, but I wonder what they would say. We can ask any workaholic or any alcoholic. They were offered mastery. They were offered freedom, but they became slaves. And Paul says, and Jesus reminds us that instead of being slaves to ourselves, we can become a friend of God. And you know what happens? I was with a friend this week, and I hadn't really seen him in a, in a little while, and it had been a few weeks, and you know how you get, like, you kind of wonder, like, where are they at with the friendship, and how are you guys, how are we doing, and what's up, and I haven't seen you in a while, and, and there was something about that time with him, like, it was just, it was so, I don't know, just a time of connection, that I wasn't really expecting, but I needed. I didn't know I needed. And that's what friends do. We participate in a friendship. And what does Jesus say? Share in my happiness. We participate in what he's doing and bringing his joy to the world through our love, through sharing the gospel in word and deed. This is how we participate. That's what friends do. And I want to end with this. While we wait how could we reverse this spiritual recession that we find ourselves in? And maybe you're, you're a victim of it. Maybe you barely made it to church today. How do we reverse this trend that we're in? And how do we, long, how do we hear those words that we long to hear from Jesus? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. The first thing, we need to intimately know whose we are who we belong to. Do we intimately know him? Like I had to reconnect with my friend. It had been a while. And some of his texts came off as, 
harsh a little bit. Some of you have been going through so much lately that you, your perceived picture of Jesus is that he's harsh instead of loving, instead of your friend, instead of your savior, instead of your master. So you need to reconnect with him every day. You need to reconnect with him together every week. This is how the perceived harshness gets, gets exchanged for what's true about him the gentle and lowly Savior that he has revealed himself to be in his word often gets replaced with lies. And so this is why we need each other. This is why we need time with him to intimately know whose we are, that we were bought with a price. We are not our own. We glorify him with our bodies. Secondly, we faithfully live when we are. A philosopher helped me realize just how important it is to, to live when you are. Yes, we're in a recession on a number of levels probably. But we're also waiting. We're in this period, this Advent period of waiting for our Lord. That's, that's really when we are. And so how, how are we living in light of when we are? Waiting for our King to return. We can't forget that. And then lastly, joyfully give where you are. Where you are. And so again, we're, we aren't just talking about money, but it's at least that. We're in, you know, sort of inching towards 2023, which is incredible. And I, by inching, I mean flying at like light speed. 2022 is, I don't know where it went. But this time of year in our church, we have a year-end giving fund. And you may know that half of that fund goes to and this incredible ministry in Hendersonville called Safe Light that is ministering to um, at-risk women, battered women, and coming around them and providing safety for, for women who have been abused. So half of our year-end giving goes to that. This is a way for us to increase our master's assets. This is low-hanging fruit, friends. To love women in their most vulnerable state, this is worthy of our money. And so I just want to encourage you to give above and beyond what you can because you have been given so much. I have been given so much. We are stewards of his varied grace. We are not owners. So we get to give money away. We also get to do other things to invest his assets. Remember, Matthew 25 is just a few chapters before the Great Commission. And so part of what it means to, to increase his assets is to evangelize, to share the good news with our friends with our coworkers, with our neighbors, with our families. When we see them at Christmas, some of them may not know Jesus yet. And so we teach the gospel. We make disciples to further the kingdom of Jesus. And we live out the great commandment. Again, imagine a church that's not only sharing the gospel in word, but also in deed. Loving God more than anything and loving our neighbors and even our enemies as we love ourselves. Imagine a world this is how we improve his assets, by embodying the kingdom together and how we treat other people. So again, year in giving is a great way. Also, there's so many places in our church to volunteer. Our children need love, lots of love. Our youth need support and love. There are so many ways, especially the new members, welcome. Um, but we have lots of needs in our church in, in which that you can serve and further his kingdom rather than our own. Uh, I want to end uh, by praying, and I want to do it in a, a slightly different way than we typically end. Um, I want us to take the, 
take just a few minutes. We're going to take two or three minutes, and we're going to listen to a song. And I, I want, the reason why I'm bringing this song to you, there's many reasons, but one of them, one of them is that it's unfamiliar probably to most of you. And sometimes when you go into a museum and you've, you're looking at a piece of art you've never seen before, there's something about a, a fresh piece of art that can sort of unearth or ex- excavate things within our hearts that we didn't know were there. And so I want you to listen to this short song and, and listen to it prayerfully. And so um, let's do that now, the song by Sufjan Stevens.
you love us. Thank you that we are yours. Lord, how quickly I get duped to thinking that life is found elsewhere, silver and gold and things and approval or pleasure. Lord, you will come with fire someday and you will show us what is most important and it is your son. And so, Lord, help us to live and spend and give and share and save as those who belong to you. We are his. That's whose we are. And I pray as we head towards Christmas, Lord, that we would be cognizant of our neighbor's needs and that we would give because we've been given so much and that we would long to spend time with you, long to know you more and more and that that would shape all that we do and the ways that we live and that it would animate every inch of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.